Hey everyone, welcome to the Sound of Scoring podcast, where we look at some of our favorite scores from film, television, and video games, and do a deep dive on our love of music. My name is Zim, and with my co-host Michael, we're attempting to find out how these scores work and how they help to tell a story. Hello everyone, welcome back to the Sound of Scoring podcast, uh, here as always with my good friend Zim. How you going Zim? Yeah, going, doing strong, Mikey G, or Michael, whichever one you'd like to be referred to known as. I'll always call you Mikey G, but I've been doing good. Just finished a couple of exam stuff, so nice, yeah. Yeah, exams in lockdown, how fun. Yeah, don't <laughs> never get caught doing another university degree while there's a pandemic because that's just a recipe for disaster really yeah look i'm glad i finished my degree because i do not envy you at all <laughs> but you're going to be a world-class film composer at the end of the night you Zim. well so will you and you didn't have to do two degrees i did one is useless but that's neither here nor there <laughs> uh today for our fifth episode it's our fifth episode isn't it i've lost track but i think it's episode yeah. number five right mm-hmm. big five we've got big number five <laughs> We have big number five, and to do that, we're going to do a first horror film of our mm. uh, podcast series. Michael, what's the film we're looking at today? So, again, uh, not doing, uh, not going back to the Harm Zimmer thing just yet. Um, we need you to help us with what film we're going to do next in the Harm Zimmer series. So, please, like whoever's listening, just contact us, Facebook page, uh, Gmail. The sound of scoring at gmail.com. I'm still looking at the emails, still have got none. Even just messages personally. Like, <laughs> yep. Um, a- Amy, if you listen, just tell us which one to do. We just need one person. <laughs> Otherwise, I will just literally choose a random one of the 2000s. Might even yeah. pick Mission Impossible 2. So, look and so, you know, if, if, you want us to, if you want us to not talk about that, good reference. Um, yeah. You know, tell us. <laughs> so today we're looking at I think probably one of my favorite at least it's definitely my favorite horror film of all <laughs> it's definitely one of my favorite horror films of all time but it's definitely up there on one of my favorite films like I've watched it so many times and I love it it's Hereditary 2018 directed by Ari Aster in his um directorial debut isn't it it's his first feature yes. film Right. Yeah. So today we're going to look at um, the director and the composer and where where they've come from um, and how Colin Stetson got this gig. Uh, then we're going to look at some of the influences um, on Colin Stetson before he made the score. And then we'll move into not so much the main themes because he doesn't really have main themes for this. We're going to do this a little differently um, and focus maybe on the progression throughout the film and the evolving nature of it. And he does have certain sounds for certain characters anyway. But yeah, so that's what we're going to cover today. Now, forgive me, Zim. I said I was doing the research this week, didn't I? But I didn't look up if it won any awards. But I don't think it did, which is a crime. I think it was snubbed for nominations at the Academy Awards and the Golden Globes, I think, which was a detriment to the Academy Awards because horror generally doesn't have a nice place at the Oscars. I think the last horror film to win big was Silence of the Lambs. And that, again, is a very iffy 
like I wouldn't call that horror, you know what I mean? So the first true yeah. full horror movie that won was probably The Exorcist, which was ages ago. It's been a while. It's been a hot minute since a horror movie has been nominated for Best Picture. I felt like Hereditary would have been a perfect choice because I had only just watched the film last week, um, and mm. I was scared to the bone. <laughs> Yeah, well, I can't. Bone. I'm just, I'm just on the IMDb right now. I cannot believe. So basically, all the ones, all the awards they won at like lesser quotation marks, like awards ceremonies and stuff. The thing that keeps on coming back is Tony Collette, Best Actress, and I cannot believe she didn't even get nominated at the Oscars for Best Actress. Like she, she's she phenomenal was in this sensational. Film. Yeah, I, I yeah. felt like she, she she's really committed a hundred percent. Oh, definitely, definitely, hundred uh, percent. She was just truly amazing. But I also really liked. Um, I think his name is Alex Wolf as Peter. Um, yeah. he was really good too. Yeah. I liked him a lot. But er- there were strong performances all round. To be fair, and yeah, the 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 script is tight. The acting is phenomenal, and the scores in Segway uh. is amazing. Oh, most definitely. That horror score is a score that lingers, evolves. It it kind of almost festers within your mind. It's just, you cannot imagine the film without this score. Composed by Colin Stetson, I believe is his name. Yeah, so Colin Stetson. Now, it's funny you say that because in an interview, he actually, like a, a random interviewer goes like, Oh, how would you recommend people listen to this? Like, what should they be doing while they listen to this? Um, and he was like, well, I don't think you can really listen to it without the film. As in, like, it's so intrinsically linked. So I think you are right. Like, the the score is so intrinsically linked with the film. Um, but he recommended listening to it first thing in the morning or the last thing you, before you go to bed. And um, I've done that a couple of times, like falling asleep to this music. Don't do that because you wake up at random points in the score and it's horrifying. <laughs> um, Yikes. But I, so Colin Stetson um, is predominantly a saxophonist, but he's a multi-instrumentalist um, and is generally all-round great. Um this is one of the first uh, movies he's done that's hit the mainstream. He did do a couple of short films and um, features here and there, but they didn't really hit the mainstream enough for me to mention them because no one would really know what they are. Um, but regardless, great work. And he's But he's mainly known for his solo work, which is how he got this gig. So Ari Aster, who, as you said, directorial debut, he had been doing some short films about taboo subjects, <laughs> including one called "The Strange Things About the Strange Thing About the Johnsons." I think. I felt like um, I think that's, in that which... was like a a very sh- a rough idea of what Hereditary would become, isn't it? It's like, yeah. Or well, have you short... seen it? I haven't seen it. I just know, like, I was researching it, and he did a lot of short films, um, and this idea, which is the something wrong with the Johnsons, or I can't remember the exact title, would then just state into what we now know as hereditary. Yeah, well, he's kind of, you know, he, he went to film school um, and he went to, I think, AFI, which is, is it AFI? Yeah. Um, yeah, okay, yeah. Where a lot of different um, 
directors have come from. But he said, you know, they were very much like the school for Hollywood directors. And so he would come in with these ideas to do the most taboo subjects he could find. The strange thing about the Johnsons is actually about, um, and I'm not laughing because of the subject matter, um, but it is about sexual abuse, but from the perspective of what if the child was sexually abusing his father, which is heavy as shit. Yeah, that is um, some heavy stuff. Jeez. And wow. and apparently, um, yeah, so I have not seen it. Not sure I want to, but I imagine it's probably as uncomfortable or if not more uncomfortable than this film. Now, this film he specifically sold as not a horror film, although it definitely is it now, definitely now a horror is. film. But it's more about it's more about a family drama than anything else, and he really tried to sell it as that. Um, yeah. He also sold it as, uh, like, what he, I'm trying to think of the exact words, but he sold it as like a cult, like um, a, a cult sacrifice, but from the perspective of the sacrificial lamb. <laughs> so, and you really get that feeling throughout the film where they are obviously the subject of this ritual. And by the way, before we go further, spoilers Spoiler for everything alert. to do with this movie. Um, your one and only spoiler warning throughout this film because it I mean, does take that, a pretty wild turn. You say that, but you know I'm going to be constantly popping up spoiler warnings, whatever, just like how I did in the last <laughs> one. So um, that's why I thought with the, let's just do let's just let's do, do a, one, one right, big okay. spoiler warning, one blanket spoiler warning, and I'll try not to bring it up again because I, having seen this film <laughs> for the first time, uh, last week. I can confidently say that you have to go into this movie blind. Um, maybe watch a trailer or don't, but do not read up or anything about this movie. And we are going to be discussing spoilers because naturally some of the best cues in the movie are related to very dramatic points and moments. So one and only spoiler warning for this episode. I'm going to try and not say any more spoiler warnings, <laughs> but you yep. have been warned. You may proceed. And And honestly, like... The score itself, and, and, and I've struggled with preparing for this episode because the score itself almost is really difficult to pick apart and pick certain parts. So I would strongly recommend, if you're a film score fan, going and listening to the score in its entirety, but also just watching the film and paying attention to the score because it evolves very slowly. Um, so it has been difficult to pick out stuff. But... Um, yeah, so this film is from the perspective of the family, but you do get this sense that there's evil going on, and that is what Ariasta told Colin Stetson from the beginning. He wanted the score to have its own character and be the evil presence in the film. So while in the beginning, I remember the first time I watched this, because I've watched this several times, nothing that scary is going on but there is something about it there is the way the camera moves the way the score acts yeah you know that there's something bubbling underneath there's definitely a sense of uneasiness that pervades the whole kind of first act even just from i think even from the very first frame in the interactions with the characters and the dialogue and then the music is a big contributing factor to that feeling as well yeah well even that first shot uh, which we'll get to that cue, shot, yeah. but 
that first shot really sets the tone. It, you know, it's slow panning. It's unrelentingly slow. It's almost you want it to hurry up, but in a, in a really good way. Like it just almost gets under your skin. And the shot of the dollhouse, I mean, that's something else that the director talks about a lot is that the dollhouse is very important, that aspect of, of miniatures and her um, wanting to create these scenes because the family ultimately doesn't really have any control over what's happening. And he's talked about that a lot in, in, in interviews. Everything, he, he says anyway, everything would have happened even if it happened a different way, but we're just seeing one of the ways that it could have happened because this was inevitable and they didn't have any choice in the matter. And they even basically paint that out. Yeah, they point that out in the classroom scene, you know, early on when the teacher talks about, like, yeah, tragic circumstances. Like, is it worse if they don't have any choice in the matter? Is it more tragic or not? So, yeah, that's definitely an aspect of this film and the music reflects that. It is unrelenting and it knows exactly what the movie is before you do for sure it is that kind of giving it's essentially giving the audience the answers at the beginning of the film but just doing it in a way that is not so straightforward with it which i think is always quite smart storytelling it knows what it is it's not it's presenting itself as it is and you have to kind of figure it out later in the movie how to decode that yeah. So Colin Stetson um has done a lot of different work. Um in, in popular movies anyway, he's one of his solo tracks was used in 12 Years a Slave um during a rather uncomfortable um lynching scene, um which I'll play oh. that track in a second because it is quite um it, even the track is quite full on, but the, the subject matter is quite full on as well. But he's also worked with many bands um, like Arcade Fire, Tom Waits, The National, Bon Iver, stuff like that, where he's helping them. Basically, he's just a really good instrumentalist. Um, and then that's translated really well to to film here. And I just want to show you, Ari Aster talks about um, how, because the way he got this job was, um, Ariasta, while writing the strip, the script, listened to his solo work, and mainly, specifically these two albums. And then, whenever he'd send the finished script to anybody, he sent it with this one track. Now, I want to show you the track right now because it's um, it clues you into the thought process, um, and and then we'll talk about what the impact on that decision made. But so yeah. this is called uh, "To See More Light." So that was from the album New History Warfare Volume 3, um, which Ariasta said he listened to quite a lot. And you really get that sense. He, he really likes to, in his solo work, basically play live everything. And you can really tell he's just focusing on the one instrument and focusing on the amount of different techniques he can do with that one instrument. Um, and it creates these really interesting effects. Um, so, and you kind of get that hereditary vibe, I think, from that. What do you think, Zim? I definitely, I think upon hearing it, it definitely had that hereditary sound, but, um, in a more rhythmic 
more intense kind of manner and it definitely seemed to have more of a structure as opposed to the hereditary sound um yeah but and it but it has that kind of that chromaticism right it keeps feeling like that 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 and the great thing about music and is that sometimes composers use techniques to kind of hijack or just as a shortcut for feeling unease and chromaticism in film music is definitely the best way to do it um for those of you that don't know a chromatic or a chromaticism is kind of like when you have a keyboard and you have you press a white key and you go a semitone or one key next to it which is either probably either a black key or in the case of E and F it's right next to each other that's a sense of uneasiness because it's not a whole tone it's a semitone and that in itself is means that it's not quite finished and it's not quite uh complete and anything that doesn't feel complete to us for at least from an auditory perspective is not great so that's why horror movies kind of use this all the time or even movies don't want to de- depict that and that scene that we not that scene that's that piece of music that we just heard is full of it uh, which again Colin brings back again in, in the film yeah exactly and I, I would add to that like essentially it's just playing on that fact that in it, say a major scale or a minor scale or something there are certain th- notes that you expect and essentially it's just subverting that expectation um and doing Subverting something expectations. Yep. Just like this film. Ah. <laughs> uh, what I'd like to look at next is um, some of the influences. So he has... There, there are some things that he's talked about um, that aren't necessarily maybe sonic influences, but um, definitely like compositionally like influenced him. Um, so... He said uh, in an interview that the Poltergeist score was something that really stuck with him, and he and he has said that like he didn't really want to do, uh, like they specifically said they don't want a traditional horror score. But um, Poltergeist does use some experimental techniques that I I think are quite interesting in the context of Hereditary. So let's just have a listen to that. So yeah, obviously a Jerry Goldsmith score is a lot different to a uh, Colin Stetson score, but uh, a lot of those glissandos make me a bit uncomfortable towards the end there as well. Yeah, no, I definitely kind of see it as if maybe Colin had to write the score without the usage of audio warping and twisting and all that in the DAW or the digital audio workstation. Um, I definitely see that that score is a kind of a proto hereditary for a lack of a better word um it's definitely something that if you wanted to try and um achieve it with an orchestra that's what you'd do yeah for sure and it does have that slow evolving nature that we we're talking about about as well um now just just before we move on to the main music of the of the score i just wanted to have a talk about the the instruments 
um, that sort of influenced the score as well, um, because a lot of the uh, a lot of the discussions around the score, he talks about people just getting the instruments wrong. Um, and I before after watching the score, I obviously did a lot of research on him after watching it before this podcast came about because I'm just interested in that kind of stuff. But um, I knew that it didn't sound like a traditional orchestra, and man, it is not. Um, for one thing, he played every single instrument on this, aside from some sampled violins, um, which don't even sound like okay. violins in the score. No. Um, I think it's the main. Hard. Sorry, For... you go. Sorry, uh, this is what happens when you do things over the internet. Um, <laughs> I think it's hard for anyone to identify any kind of instrument within the score. It's so um, omnipotently oppressive and very good at masking its true source, I guess, from a lack of a better word. Um, mm-hmm. So it took me a while to kind of figure that one out as well in terms of what are the instruments playing. Yeah, exactly. And so the, one of the main instruments is clarinet. Um, and he uses a wide range of woodwinds, mainly woodwinds because, and he talks about wanting to give the film a breath, like a sense of breath. Um, and it really makes it sound like the score is kind of a living, breathing character. And I honestly feel like the score is kind of coming from the cult's perspective in this in this situation and how that interacts with the family. I, I concur. It definitely sounds like something um, from the cult's perspective. That's what their kind of music would be like, right? Um, it's almost... Because, you know, when you picture cults, you think of... A lot of choral chanting and stuff like that, uh, you know. And in the way the score kind of mimics that, because like you said, it's a woodwind. You have to breathe into it to create the music. Um, so there is that kind of there is a a vocal element in there, for lack of a better word, because these sounds have to be produced by um, breath. So yeah, there I can see how that I can see the thought process. I do guess they try to connect the dots from like all right, cult, choral stuff woodwinds transform the shit out of it yeah and there is a lot of choral stuff in this and not only choral stuff because there's a lot of kind of uh chanty type vocals in it but he reckons that there is something like 40 to 50 percent of the score is vocals so a lot of the time you cannot even tell because he's modulated his voice but he says that a lot of the suspensions and a lot of the um movement like the the notes that slide down into other notes he reckons a lot of that is vocals um which is interesting because i didn't call that at all um but one sorry (laughs) we've done it again (laughs) sorry no um no we're gonna always edit this out i agree yeah i was just gonna say that (laughs) Um, but one of the more important, I think one of the more important, um, aspects of this score is honestly something I didn't know existed really until this score, um, was the contra bass clarinet, um, which is a massive instrument. It's not a contra bassoon. It's a contra bass clarinet. Interesting. Is that... For the 
the lowest kind of frequencies that when it plays in the score, like that really almost gravelly like um, sound. Yeah, well, we're gonna we're gonna hear it in a sec so that we can identify it in the score. So, um, it sounds very hard to play. You need a lot of breath to do it, and it it, it covers most of the low drone sounds that you hear in the score. But first of all, I just wanted to give you a quick overview of what a contrabass a contrabass clarinet sounds like and this is just uh something i found on youtube of a duet between a piccolo and a contrabass clarinet but you can really hear the player like struggling with the notes and i think that's kind of important to the score as well And obviously, Colin Stetson's a better contrabass clarinet player than that person is. Um, Bless him. He was trying his hardest to um, try and follow that. He was. It yeah. sounds very hard to play. <laughs> it's almost like the instrument is fighting you. Yeah, exactly. Let's just, before we move on to the actual movie, um, let's talk about that track that I was talking about before that was used in 12 Years a Slave called Awake on Foreign Shores. And I found this live clip of him playing it, um, and he is a fantastic player. But you really get a good sense of how he uses it in the film. And I think you'll be able to pick it up on in the rest of the score as well. Um, but let's have a listen to that now. Yeah, interesting stuff. <laughs> very, very interesting stuff. That um, that is wild. That is yeah. Um, it, what is that? A bass? Uh, sorry, a contra bassoon clarinet Con- contra bass. What what the instrument? Is that what he's playing right now? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So right. I and, and I'm going to keep keep almost saying contra bassoon as well <laughs> because it's it's hard yeah. to like get around in my head. But it's a contra bass clarinet and he's hammering that thing like it's 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 aggressive and he might even have some distortion on it as well but he's really using yeah. overtones so he's using his breath Ooh. to create different tones in the instrument that creates he's not changing notes when he flips that um which is a really interesting effect that he uses a lot in um hereditary as well and you definitely can get the it's definitely a concept that you can hear it in that track carries on. It's interesting because, um, of course, the guy who composed 12 Years of Slave, the score, was Hans Zimmer. So I'm wondering whether oh, right. they even... I'm wondering there was a little collaboration in that part. That's uh, Of course, we can't just avoid Hans Zimmer completely. He'll always pop up yeah. there, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Well, they that, that track was on his solo album, and then they used use that right. in the film so it, it is just a licensed track licensed track but he did say one of his favorite scores of all time was thin red line by hans zimmer the hans just keeps popping up no he's ubiquitous he's everywhere yeah and it is that school of composing 
where it's not so much thematic composing, as in it's not so much character-based themes and motifs. It's not a leitmotif thing. It's about putting you right into the into the feeling, into the emotion. Hmm. It's not about what a character represents. It's not about them being heroic. It's about this is this scene is meant to be uncomfortable. The music should be that. Yeah, and and he does say a lot that he wanted the score. He didn't want the score to be at the forefront. He wanted it to be a little subtle, or at least not. He didn't want people thinking about the score, which is interesting. He he, because I think the score really jumps out at the end. Um, I think but, so too, and I think even when you first hear it, it is also it does jump out at you. But it's not the kind of one where you like, oh, I'm gonna be humming this when I go back home yeah. from the cinema. <laughs> it's kind of like, <laughs> I don't know. Sometimes I do the. <laughs> Okay, that's like the one cue where you can like, okay, I guess you can hum that, but everything I can't just go like, wah, wah, <laughs> you know? Um, but yeah, so along with Hans Zimmer, Thin Red Line, he also said that Johan Johansson, who tragically passed away a couple of years ago, um, who's that's famous different. for a lot of different scores, but he really likes the Prisoners score, and so do I. Prisoners is a fantastic film and a fantastic score Prisoners as well. This is good. Um, so a lot sure. of I liked Johan. Oh, God damn this internet! Sorry. Um, I liked <laughs> um, Johan's work. Uh, I liked Johan's work on Sicario, which was really good. Always yep. recommend Sicario, and I liked his more sentimental score for the Theory of Everything. Mm-hmm. That was also really good. Um, I would have loved to, to have do... seen what he did. <laughs> well, I think he did work on Blade Runner twenty forty nine, um, yeah. but then Denis and him, Denis Villeneuve, the director of also Prisoners of Sicario, was kind of like, um, maybe your score is not right for Blade Runner twenty forty nine, and they parted mutually. And then, yeah. of course, Hans came into the picture. <laughs> well, Benjamin Wolfish, really, but and Benjamin Wolfish too, yes. But mainly and ben, then, uh, Benjamin Wolfish. And then Wolfish. tragically passed away. Yeah, yeah. mainly Benjamin Wolfish. He was, a, he was a great composer and a great musician. Um, he was. But Zim, so, because I'm going to be yes. talking a lot because this is one of my favorite movies. Can you tell me what the story of the movie was? Full spoilers. Go ahead. <laughs> Full spoilers. All right. Well, the story revolves around a family. Uh, what's his surname? I don't even remember this surname. Oh, um, uh, I'd, but, I'm uh, not actually sure. <laughs> they don't really yeah. tell, say each other's names that much in the film. No, they they don't. Exactly right. Um, the matriarch of the family, played by Tony Collette, her mother has passed away, and so the family, which is her, her husband, and their two children, um, Peter, the boy, and Charlie, a fourteen and fifteen year old little girl, um, mm-hmm. are of course all reeling from the tragedy of it. Um, and it's kind of also hinted early on that there has been a history of mental illness, especially on the mother's side, I think. Mm-hmm. And they had a complicated relationship as well. They had a complicated relationship too. Um, everyone's kind of suffering their own way. And spoilers about maybe, I want to say 30 minutes into the film, Charlie dies in a, uh, in a really horrifying way. Yeah, it's one of the most shocking things in the film. Not only because 
it's graphic and it's it's insane that she loses her head but also because the trailer's made out that she was going to be a main character and then she's gone um, and I guess she still was a main character. Because the trailer makes it out like, you know how the cliche of horror movies is the creepy little girl or the creepy mm. little kid that plays a role. Uh, but the way she's just kind of, uh, not unceremon- unceremoniously, but she's just killed off like that. And while, yes, it is graphic, we don't actually see the the head come off. No, but you see her head later. <laughs> we do see her head later, yes. But it's all about the, the sense of, un- like, we... We then rest on um, Peter's face as he's driving the car. For the the whole minutia of how it happened was, he's driving her to the hospital because she has an allergic reaction to some peanuts she ate. She then opens the window of the car door and sticks her head out to kind of breathe because she's losing her breath. So Peter's like, "No, wait, don't do that." He has to swerve the car to avoid a goat, and of course, it makes it adjacent to a telephone pole and going at high speed, and of course. An unstoppable force meets an immovable object. <laughs> There'll be damage of a collateral nature. Well, her head wasn't immovable. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> I just, want, I just right. wanted to put that reference in there. Right? Yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, okay. But, I mean, interestingly, that pole come, it has come earlier with a symbol of the cult on it. So... It has this feeling of it's all planned and it's all inevitable. Um, it's all connected. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. And yeah, that that the next fifteen minutes after that is insane, isn't it? That's probably the most uncomfortable I've ever kind of felt watching a horror movie. And it's not graphic. It's not that you just know what's going to happen. And it's that it's the rule of Hitchcock where. The bang is not what's scary. It is the build-up to the bang. I know I'm paraphrasing yeah. here, but it is that build-up, right? And so then when you actually then finally go to the next morning and Tony Collette finds her, you know, headless, finds the headless body of her daughter, you can hear the scream, but it focuses on Peter's face. And mm. it's just horrifying. But I digress. We're looking at the minutiae of the film, but the rest of the story is it fractures the family even more. Some weird shit starting to happen when, and at this point, we all cons- consider okay, maybe it could be part of the mental illness because you know, hey, does the tr- tradition of it being among the family complicated relationship? And now, two deaths in the family it's making things even worse. They seem to be at each other's throats more or less. Um, but it's a really weird shit starts to happen, and then we find out later that it's all part of a nefarious cult trying to raise. Uh, king of hell into a person's body and they succeed i know yeah, i'm paraphrasing exactly. here and i know i'm really kind of truncating it um here oh no it's a complicated even though we story have talk- it is yeah it's it's a complicated way that they've uh told it that doesn't mean it's not like difficult to follow and it's not bad i think it's really good and i also think that you know i know i've we set spoiler warning here and all that but it would be a disservice to even people who have seen the film or people who haven't seen the film but decided to still listen for some reason um, <laughs> to still watch the film even if you have it spoiled for you because there's a lot of stuff that happens in there. It's also a filmmaker's film. So mm. for film lovers everywhere and people who want to make movies, this is a example of uh, a filmmaker who loves the art form and uses all the tools that he can to create the best experience. Um, forward 
I can't speak for his other feature, Midsummer. I heard that's meant to be pretty good too as well. Yeah, exactly. Um, and yeah, I mean, such a wild film. It takes such a wild turn. I mean, and, and I guess one important character thing is that Charlie has been King Payman all along. Um, that since since birth, I, you know what? I never, I never saw, I never actually considered that. I literally. Really? Yeah, no. So God, it's it's that... all about that. I mean, there's that moment where she talks about how she kept her son away from her mother and it has to be a male body, right? So her mother couldn't see, sink her teeth into um, into her son. But her mother then, right. but then Tony Collette ends up giving her, quote, um, giving her her daughter and she sinks her teeth into her, ah. and even wouldn't wouldn't even let Tony Collette ba- um, breastfeed her. She had to breastfeed her herself. So it's it's kind of implied that she's always been King Payman, um, and they were just right. waiting for a body that's to a, give her. That's that that okay. So f- that's the first time I can thought of that. And that's the beauty of this film. There are many different ways to kind of interpret the material. Um, because because that does make sense um, when you look at it later in the on the film you find that Tony Collette's mother had been involved with a cult um, and the friend Julie I think her name is is one of mm. them and all that so um, there's value a, in rewatch whew, it's a, like yes which some films don't always have um, uh, as in you don't get things rewatching it a second or third time I think you know. Like with the Transformers films, <laughs> you get more brain you get more brain damage, I guess, when you rewatch them. But you know, uh, and look, and I'm uh, I don't want to slag Transformers too much. I think that oh, I do. Every film has some kind of <laughs> okay, that's fair. I think every film has some kind of worth into it. You know, I think except for the Last Avenger and M Night Shyamalan's filmography to the extent of the Last Avenger. But with the Transformers films, I can appreciate the set pieces and all that. My point being, and this is a bit of a divergent, um, hereditary, definite value in rewatch because you can uh, read it or interpret it in any myriad of different ways that can all be valid, really. Yeah, for sure. And, I mean, I caught things on this, I think, like, fifth rewatch I I did for this podcast. Hot damn. Um, Because I think it was one of the first times, I think it's the only time I've listened to it with headphones. Um and the sound design is amazing. And I caught something that was really creepy, really unsettled me, is straight after the funeral, um, they come back to the house. And just before they enter the house, you can hear them outside, but then the shot starts in the house without them. And you can hear footsteps or creaking upstairs. So the cult was already in their house. All right. Well, I mean, because I watched it with headphones too. Um but as my first rewatch, I guess I wasn't focusing and picking it up on that. So, oh no, for sure, I, I didn't catch it before. But it's just—I don't know—it's just little details like that that really creep me out. It has to take you five watches to get yeah. to that point where you're just like, I know it exactly. Now. Yeah. So we should actually get started on the music. Um, yes, we should. But <laughs> we were talking about before that um, opening shot and how good it is. Well, the music is is as tone setting as that is. Um, so this is called the, from the queue called Funeral, um, which is just before the funeral. And I should mention as well, it starts with text, basically an obituary for the mother. 
and I think the music starts either on it or just after. And it really fades in. You really get a sense of what you're in for with the score. And it's just unrelenting, slow, evolving music. So we'll just listen to that now. You get that little. There's some spooky shit, man. Yeah, and you get that contra bass clarinet. You get oh. probably vocals. You know, you get everything in there. Yeah, I do. I do remember when I first heard it. It had to my ear some similarities to the opening of I think it was the Conjuring Conjuring Two, where it has that kind of low horror like oh but done in a more is this zim's conspiracy corner uh could be um <laughs> to be fair i haven't seen the country in a while either um and i like the country i like that kind of classic horror horror movie-esque and uh mad respect for james one who is mm. australian and malaysian so mad respect mm. to him um like me but uh <laughs> Um, but I think in in the conjuring stuff, his ones is more like a, you can tell it's a it's a choir, right? Or it's a man's voice going like "bah" or something like that. But in here, it's not as easily identifiable, which makes it even more creepy. I do like the little kind of ostinato, the I, I, I don't know what the exact notes are. I think you did it pretty well. Um, it it also just comes out of nowhere, mm. and you feel like does it fit? When I was like, ah, oh, it kind of fits. It's fucking creepy. Up, oh, fuck. Oh, all the language here. Uh. <laughs> it's fine. We put explicit on our podcast. It's fine. Cool. This is rated MA15 <laughs> or R. Um, I think one of the most important aspects of this score, and and it comes to kind of certain moments where it, it, it juxtaposes that, but a lot of the time, and it's very apparent in that opening, because that chord comes back a lot, that one chord that mm-hmm. it's very unfeeling. And I, and I think the reason that is, and that's creepy because one, it's kind of that, that sense of like when you're looking at someone's face, if you can't tell, or, or maybe if, the, if their face is obstruction, ob- obstructed and you can't tell whether they're happy or sad, you know, those tests where like half the face is like gone or whatever. Man, I, um, have, man, I have that feeling when I look at people with their full faces and I'm like, I don't know what this is. I don't know what you're feeling. <laughs> yeah. And when you can't tell, it's creepy. And I think it's the same thing here because there's no major or minor tone to it. It's It just is. I and concur. And this is after having just done an oral test, I can conclude that that chord had no major or minor feel. 
or I don't even know what feel it did have. This shows that I'm also pretty bad at oral. Do you know what <laughs> card it is? I, I, I'm not sure exactly what card it is. He's generally sticking to firsts and fifths. But I also think, kind of going back to what you were talking about earlier, he's he in his work, in, the sol- in his solo work, but even in this, he definitely likes a chromatic scale. So a lot of the time, there's no real discernible key. There's no real... Um, kind of home base. You get, you just get uncertainty, and that's basically what that whole chord is. Um, and immediately you just get this. You know, this is just a funeral for her mother, but you know that it's not. Like you just get this feeling instantly that no, it's not, and this is unfeeling. Something's up, yeah. And their fate has already been sealed. You get that. You get that feeling straight away. Like it's it's uncertain, but it's also definitive, which I know seems like an oxymoron. Um. Or con- pair of contradictory words kind of put together, um, but it works in this case. Yeah, it, yeah, unfeeling and certain is probably a good way to put it. It's yeah, it's exactly what it is. Um, so let's move on to the next cue. So I've just gone straight to the second cue called mothers and daughters, and this one's a bit of a longer cue, but I think it really um, shows the evolution. Now this one. As I think one of the creepier moments in the film, and I'm not sure how, why it is because how long is the queue? The queue is uh, well, I mean, this the excerpt that I've chosen that I've yeah. taken out of it is about two minutes long. Okay, um, I just want to, I was like, want to say, like, look, the excerpt is two minutes. I think listening to it will be good, but if you feel like you've got other stuff to do, which fair enough, or you want to go and fast forward to our discussion about it, if so thank you i guess um you can skip two minutes ahead from whenever the queue starts yeah and yeah and and make and make sure in your own time you go back and and listen to the score as well because it's it's really great um and because you know otherwise we you're you are essentially listening to our analysis without having the reference for it which is hey if that's what you want to do that's your life i guess but it's not strictly speaking advised (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Um, this is to me one of the creepier moments in the film one of the most creepy in the moments in the film to me and obviously that's that's subjective but it starts when she's working in her workshop and kind of ends when she thinks she sees her mother in the room and you get that vague outline of her mother in the room um, until she turns the light back on and I don't care how many times I watch it, it still gets me because she looks like a still image, but just in the room with her. I and love I'm not how sh- that it was just, there was no pomp or circumstance to it. It was just like, she was there. Yeah. The camera just turns the looks, and it's not even treated like a jump scare. It's not like musical cue, just kind of like, oh, look, mom's there. Mom, what? <laughs> you know? Yeah. So... And also, one of the things that this film does and, and Colin Stetson does, which has really inspired me as a film composer, it's something that I try and do a lot of now as well, is kind of the reverse jump scare. So you build up the sound so much and then take it away at a moment's instance and it's gone. And that, to me, is almost scarier because it's, it's so unexpected. And that's something that this cue does, it builds up to, and, and you'll just hear it and then it's gone straight away. Um, uh, so let's I listen think what to... will happen is your part, your technique will get so popular that over time we'll have to reverse, reverse 
jump scare and go back to jump scare music. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, well, it's not my technique. It's not even Colin Stetson's technique. It, it, it's like a, you know, it's a common, not common, but it's in horror movies anyway, it's not that common. And I think Colin has done a really great job using it here. Because um, I guess he was like, well, I don't want to do jump scares. What can I do? But you will perfect it, calling it the Mikey G technique. <laughs> the Mikey G technique, yeah. Okay, so this is Mothers and Daughters. So, yeah, what a what a tense piece of music, and it actually has what I'd call the only utterance of a theme in there. I I did notice that because that comes that um I'm not sure whether it's a tuna motif, but it kind of rises every time that returns at the very end, um, which we'll get into, uh, not in a second. I don't know when, but we'll definitely get into that, um. But it's also like a nice use of overlaying different kind of sounds to create almost a pseudo wall of sound, but each have their own kind of tones kind of clashing and mixing together. And of course, like you said, the cr- he does go rising in chromat. But I can't even English to write. I'm sorry, guys. <laughs> uh, can't even. He's doing it chromatically as well, which is even more unnerving and more creepy. But uh, I want to hear your thoughts on this, seeing as you're the resident hereditary expert. <laughs> um 
Yeah, it. I I would even call go as far as to call this King Payman's theme, um, and he seems to use because we just talked about a cue that has unfeeling. It's it's not. It doesn't have. Uh, you know, it, it's a kind of indifferent, and that's almost threatening. But there's choice moments in this film where he lets you have a major note, or he lets you have a minor note. And this is this theme is one of them, and it's almost like the film's letting you in a little bit on what's happening because she's going through the box of her mother's things, and that's where she en- ends up finding later on out all of the bad stuff that her mum has been involved in, and she even reads a note from her mum saying, "All of this will make sense later on." So it's really interesting to me that from the cult's perspective this is the good thing. Like, this is the thing that they're working towards and the the music kind of reflects that. Where the music turns and that, that, that transition, that slow modulation to creepy and holy crap, what the hell's wrong with this? And there's a very specific technique in there that I love, which is two instruments starting on the same note. One stays on that note and one slides down. So you get this really creepy, like, dissonant sound of things being torn apart pretty much as the right. sh- as she thinks she sees her mother and man that is just so creepy to me and it's a really nice use of juxtaposition of, of a really sad thing or a really horrifying thing and then you've got all these major notes and <laughs> it's it's almost a nice theme in a way um and i guess to king payment it is a nice theme because <laughs> yeah he's a it's his everything's coming up for him really yeah um, especially near the end of the movie um yeah exactly so yeah um, no, did I, you have any other thoughts on that uh i think you covered most of it again i feel like we do it a disservice here and i feel like we do a disservice to every score we do because an important part of the score is the visual image it accompanies so we stress to yeah listen to it but also to watch it in sync with whatever picture it's covering. Mm. And I... um, Because, yeah, the actual image that it covers, that it syncs with, is also just, like, pitch-perfect filmmaking as well. So, yeah, I I really like that cue. Uh, I was creeped out. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Uh, Heart rate rate rising a little bit, but, yeah, so... Yeah, it's it's all just very unnerving. Um, and, And really good scoring as well. Um, so let us move on to the next cue. So this one's called brother and sister. Um, right. And we get a few of the, of these kind of tense stuff that comes back a bit later on. And I think this is playing over them in school and it's just showing their kind of day to day life. Um, and Charlie being strange as always cutting off um, pigeons heads and stuff. That um, now, now with the whole thing that she's King Payman, that makes sense now because I was like, yeah. why is she just randomly cutting off heads of pigeons and stuff? And I'm like, now nah, you know what? Now it makes sense. Yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, it's a nice tense piece of music, like all of these pieces of music. So let's let's dive into it.
So yeah, just at the end there too, you get a little bit of Payman's theme played by clarinet just before I trailed off there. But mm. um, yeah, you get that pulse, which comes back later on in a very specific yeah, I, moment. I remember listening to that pulse and I was like, because it seemed so removed, I guess, from the original instrumentation, for a lack of a better word, of the score. So where that kind of pulse comes in, I'm kind of like, is that someone playing a freaking bass beat nearby or something like that? But it, it works to the film's um, it works to the film's credit, and I think mm. it really um gives it that pulsating, almost inorganic, which I think well, it's also another way to describe the rest of the score is inorganic, because even when it comes from organic instruments, it twists it to become something inorganic. Yeah, I think the thing is as well, like at that point. She's cutting the head off the pigeon, I'm pretty sure. And it feels like something is bubbling. And it feels like, it feels very on purpose that that is the moment where it, it is it is pushing. It's it's driving at that point. When really in the scene, it's, it's a very slow scene and almost unrelenting. But um, the pulsing of it kind of makes it go, this is important. And really, it does become pretty important because all of the women in the family become headless. Um. <laughs> that's true. That's true. <laughs> and it would also foreshadow Charlie's fate as well. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, yeah, really unsettling. Lot of, lots of weird little chromatic, um, you know, woodwind instruments in there just driving you up the wall. And honestly, you have to practice. You have to be good at being this unrelenting. Uh, Colin Stetson, I mean, because I, mean, I like this type of music and I like making this type of music, but I'm not that as patient as him. To, no. to be able to do that time and time again... And not resolve it is like got to be maddening. <laughs> like it's got to be, yeah. you got to be it's sitting there the, doing it and being like, nope, I'm not going to resolve it. I'm not going to resolve it. <laughs> no, I'm just going to leave this so ambiguous because I think that's one of the things we kind of, I think, is inherently part of us as musicians. So like when we want to compose something, it must resolve one way or another mm. to something at the very least. Otherwise, it's just left uncompleted, which is one of those things where you have to separate when you're a film composer, sometimes what might work good musically might not necessarily work great for a film. Yeah. So if you can, can you imagine if you tr- actually try to resolve that? I think it would just take away or detract a lot from the actual thing. But instead, he like stuck it out no matter how much it hurt him. Mm. <laughs> and um, Well, if you've listened course, to his is... solo music, you know he doesn't like resolving things anyway. Like ah, he, well, he, there we go. His solo music is as unbearable as that is in the best way possible. I mean that as a compliment. Um, <laughs> but he does almost give you a, a resolution at the end. The the whole King Payment thing, which we'll get to um, towards the end, is a resolution of sorts, but it feels so wrong with everything we've just watched that it's not at all. Like you're still sitting there at the end going, what? What the fuck just happened? You're not sitting there going, oh, thank God we got a major chord at the end. Like it's not, it's not how it works. Um, yeah. So <sighs> it's a resolution for King Payman, but that's about it. Like everyone else is kind of fucked. <laughs> yeah, no, it's... But um, definitely, 100%, a great cue. Mm. As is everything in this film, really. Yeah. 
So the next cue is probably what I'd call the only other motif in that it seems to be what he's chosen for the light. You know, the light that kind of hovers around the room um, for both Charlie and Pete when Peter's in the school. Um, it happens to him as well. Um, just before he does the pointy hand thingy, which is very creepy. Um, but it first happens to Charlie when she's in her room um, drawing and I think putting together the pigeon head um, oh, yeah. figurine. But yeah, it's just this very odd sound. Uh, and it really took me aback when watching the film. So yeah, the, the, the light kind of moment is at the start. It's just like a short stab and then almost reverse of that sound happening. Yep. Um, and then it moves into as she's walking outside and she sees uh, the grandmother sitting by a fire um, in the distance. Um, and that comes back. Yeah, it's one of the few tracks and sounds within the score that has an implied movement and rhythm. Everything is very much a long uh, chords and sounds kind of being told. And then there's one thing that has movement in it, you know, um, which I find interesting. Um, and it kind of gives a sense of urgency um, implied, uh, however it might be, because some some parts of the films are very urgent uh, with that. I'm not sure about the scene, though. But that's my opinion, of course. Yeah, for sure. I think between that, the, that and the pulse, because the first, I'd say, two-thirds of the movie move at a relatively such a slow pace. I think that he, do, from, yeah. a technic, from a technical point of view, he's using it to try and make it seem like there's a certain sense of urgency. Because I think maybe without that, you wouldn't have that at all. Um, because the shot selection, the editing is all so super slow and, is, and works. Slow. But I think with that, it keeps you on the edge of your seat, like something could happen at any moment. But it doesn't. Yeah. It never does. <laughs> <clears throat> um, so let's move on to the crash. It's the the queue is called Party Crash. Um, ah. And interestingly, um, he didn't really use any traditional forms of percussion either. Like he's not using any traditional really? form of instruments either. But basically it's all clicky clacks from his instruments and using his instruments in a percussive way which is um, something that you tr- um tried to do for a horror movie of yours yourself isn't it well look that 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 a, a short horror movie that i've scored uh it isn't out 
uh, yet, but I was very ins- inspired by this score yeah. um, because our uh, roommate played clarinet. So I made use of that and told him, don't play it good, even though he was a good clarinet player. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so, and he definitely does it more effective here than I do. But this is almost his version of action music and it's kind of like it works and but it, on a real still creepy level i'm not sure how you make action music kind of creepy but he does And then that's when... Uh, <laughs> oh, flashing back to it now. Oh. And again, a reverse jump scare. Because obviously that's not what you're expecting. Um, <clears throat> and you might even notice in there too that unfeeling chord from the beginning. The opening cue comes back as well. It does. Um, so he's really using that to represent like, hey, this is destiny. Like, you've got no choice in this. This is happening whether you this like it or not. It's unfeeling but it's yeah. certain it's going to happen. It's almost the cult chord, if you want. Yep. Um, no and then, no ghost dads to talk yeah. about in this one. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but there's ghost mums and ghost yeah, grandmas. There is, but this is more of the I'm going to get you ghosts. is more like the <laughs> lesson teaching ghost dads. To be fair, and this might be controversial, the grandmother doesn't hate her family. <laughs> she just would rather serve King Payman than let them live. <laughs> I don't know. By let it, by serving King Payman, she forfeits any right to love her family. And she <laughs> yeah. just automatically hates them, in my opinion. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's true. Uh, let's not humanize the cult lady. No, let's not. Um, but so what follows after that is an unrelenting 10... I don't know, it feels like forever to me. I don't even know how long it is, but it was especially hard to try and choose an excerpt because the queue obviously is long and it's all so evolving and droney. But I chose a bit that that really sells it for me because it cuts to a bunch of different stuff. It cuts to um, Tony Collette finding her daughter in the morning because Peter hasn't hasn't, um, done anything. He's just gone home. He and literally drives the body back there. with the with the dismembered body in the car, and then goes to sleep. Yeah, well, which by the way I found out was sort of an inspiration for the script. Uh, it happened in real life. Uh, two Jeez. buddies were driving, and the guy in the back was drunk and stuck his head out of the window, and the friend accidentally decapitated him and drove home and went to sleep. Uh, so it happened in real life. Um, Yikes. But- and it's the type of thing where you can totally understand because you're just like, holy shit, I just killed my sister. Like, you, you, you're not equipped to deal with that. Why would you be? Like, No, um, yeah. But I like when I saw it, I was, it kind of felt to me like, ah, oh, killed my sister. I guess I'll deal with it in the morning. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, a little bit. But, I mean, it's one of those moments where I'm just like, oh, man. Like, I, I just feel for him so bad because 
you know, what is he supposed to say? What is he supposed to do? He doesn't want to deal with it because, holy shit, he has to deal with the reality that he killed his sister. Um, yeah. And, which, and so, the, the mom does not... The mom gives him so much shit for it later on as well, which is... Oh, <laughs> oh yeah. Uh, that's a tense scene as well, but... Very tense. Um, the excerpt I've chosen is when it cuts back to her in her room and she is screaming, I just want to die. And it's very, very heartbreaking. But then the camera slowly pans and he's in the hallway looking and he's just looking just just like a mess. Um, and the score's doing some really interesting things because, and interestingly, I think the score's characterization of Peter, the score has a very aggressive sense towards Peter. And I think it's because the cult wants him gone like he, he, they don't want peter in the picture they want his body not him so i think mm-hmm. the score is aggressive towards him on purpose but the score is very aggressive here so let's have a listen So just quickly, I think I got the wrong cue, but or the wrong right. section. That it's still similar though, because it's the bit where he um, rides his bike home from school and then stands in the in the house. Uh, it stand, stands at the front of the house the, for a while, and it turns ball, out yeah. that her mum, his mum's in the car, and he doesn't know it. And then the camera does that that awesome movement where it goes over the car, turns, looks at him, and then he goes inside. And then she drives away. And it just gives you this... It, it almost makes it seem like she wants to kill him. Like, Yeah, it, it's that feeling like, uh, are you going to run him over? That's uh, that's not cool, but I, I guess I get it. Yeah, so it's like, what do you think of that music? It's it's very aggressive, hey? It is. Um, I think it's that almost kind of like that, like you said, because the cult wants his body. So it's mm. this kind of aggress- aggressive, domineering, kind of like, oh... Uh, this is the target kind of thing. Um, of course, you can only really kind of look at that after seeing the movie and knowing what happened. Um, but it also there is also a tinge of sadness to all of this as well. You've got mm. that kind of long, languid, kind of high-frequency notes, which, you know, is always like... It's basically the quintessential kind of sadness and all that, you know? Um, so there's an element of tragedy, I feel, with that. Because I don't... I think Peter's not trying to be, you know, he didn't murder his sister. No, it was no. an accident, right? Yeah. You know, but 
can't change what happened, right? It it happened, so yeah, exactly. <laughs> I still I really like the cue, and I think I like I like a lot of the music in this film. Um, it's not hummable. Um, not every <laughs> great film score has to be hummable. Um, you know, some of the best ones aren't. Like again, this one. Uh, mm. But I still stand by that it's a very good horror score and a very good piece of music as well to listen to. Yeah. Um, I know you're more of a bigger fan than I do because you've got the vinyl for it. Yeah, I do. Um, I, I it creeps my girlfriend out when I play it, but <laughs> I absolutely love this score. I think it's it's one of my favorite scores, let alone in horror. Um, but let's skip ahead a little bit in the movie because there's so much I want to uh, look towards and I'm already thinking I'm going to have to skip a few uh, looking at the time that we've got. Because how, much, how, how long have we recorded for? Uh, an hour and 20. Hot damn. All right. Yeah. So this bit is the uh, sleepwalking sequence um, just before the seance. Um, And it it leads right up to the bit right before. And I tell you, like, it's probably the most effective jump scare, I think, or the most effective reverse jump scare in the movie, I think, because she finds a bunch of ants and then follows them and realizes um, Peter's head has been um, covered in ants, kind of like Charlie's head. Yeah, he's also producing the the ants right yeah and yeah um through the music builds up so creepily and um, you know again aggressively and then it cuts right as he says mum and they've turned up the mum so high <laughs> that i jump every time he says mum <laughs> <laughs> um <sighs> But obviously there's no mum in this bit, but in this cue that I've got here, but you'll get the sense exactly when the cue cuts. It builds up so much. Like, it's so... And then, and then to not resolve it, just to be like, boop, cutting it. That's it. Well, I feel like that's the word that's the word we haven't said yet, which is exactly what this music is. And, and I think Colin Stetson's music in general, which is, it's atonal, which means it's, that's it, yeah. it's not following any specific home route. I, I, I'm not even sure you could resolve that really well no, because it's got no could. place to go. In 
and I think this is probably right for me to refer it to. Um, but this is my personal feeling. It reminds me of, and there's a cue in one of the more controversial films that I like, which is Batman vs. Superman, Dawn of Justice. But there is a cue in that <laughs> film where it's almost like a... Sc- it, it represents Bruce Wayne, where it's almost like a wailing scream that always builds and rises, and it's very atonal and stuff. And that's what this reminds me of. It's like this almost wailing, rising kind of like ever buildingness, and then to just, then just to just cut to silence like a gangster to not even just like do anything to be like boop, whatever, done. I've built it up so much. Here it is, this rising tension where you know you're it's getting angrier and angrier. I'm like, oh, whatever, done, move <laughs> along, you know. Yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. I, I, I totally agree. Um, hey, it's just I, I, I don't like I, I get chills listening to it because it, it, it stops so suddenly, but it's also just so much, and it feels overwhelming in the moment. And then it, you can't even process that he, um, Peter said "mum," and then let alone that the dream is still going. Like you don't, you don't get any of that a, until the end. A dream within a dream, if you will. <laughs> Inception. Um, yeah. So let's move on. Now I'm skipping one called Book Burning, which I think is a great cue, um, but it, it is just slightly too long for what we're going to do here. But Take a listen to that in your spare time. It's essentially the bit where um, she tries to throw Charlie's book in the fire, but then realizes that it's going to burn her, which comes back later when she attempts to sacrifice herself. But then essentially Payman's like, ha fuck you. And it burns her husband <laughs> instead, um, which is just tragic. <laughs> what a mischievous little dude. He's like, I'm going to burn this guy instead. Jokes on you, motherfucker. Yeah, well, like as Ari Aster says, it, it, that moment's almost just a way of saying, like, you have no control over this. You think you know, but you don't. Like, you've got nothing. Yeah. Um, like you think you know the rules, but the rules just got. Changed, yeah, there's no son. rules. Like, I'm going into your son's body, <laughs> no matter what. Oh, that yeah. sounds creepy. Phrasing. Boom. <laughs> All right. So the next cue I want to look at is um, called "Get Out," which I also think is one of the creepier moments in the film is where Peter's in the playground and then um, Joni comes to the car park and starts screaming at him to get out. And it's like, he's just sitting there kind of like you are in the, in watching the movie going, wait, is she talking to me? <laughs> like, What's going on? It makes me feel weird every time. And I think the music is a big part of that. Yeah.
<laughs> that that part where it kind of just changes into a very distorted kind of music. I'm just kind of like, ah! Yeah. I mean, he's Whoa. using so much distortion on that and, and using other notes to... I don't know. It, it irks something in my spine. Like, it gives me spine tingles. Um, I hear that. And... Yeah, and and you just get Jesus. you get how angry the score is at Peter at that moment. Like, and I think I'm going to skip oh, another it's... cue, which basically just repeats again the fact that the score it reaffirms that. Yeah, yeah, the score is angry at Peter, and the cult is angry at Peter as well. And you know, while she's screaming, "Peter, get out!" and it's like, "Holy crap!" <laughs> um, Damn it, Peter. He's a good guy. He did nothing wrong. Yeah, he he's a good Apart kid. He just maybe, likes weed, you know. He's killing his sister. Yeah. Maybe this is this whole film. Don't smoke weed. On weed. Yeah. <laughs> Don't smoke weed, kids. Um so yeah, and, and, and you get those little trilly uh clarinets in the background, um, kind of just playing they're playing the same thing over and over again, but it doesn't necessarily relate to the note that's going on. So it really gives it this atonal mess um and essentially he's just disorienting um like peter's feeling in the moment and and all yeah like most of this music it's just all trying to tap into the psychology of the characters and um as well trying to tap you into their psychology so yeah just intense though it's a lot to listen to it's heavy yeah really heavy stuff so let's move on because we're slowly right. racking up more and more time. We are. But this one is called Lee's Things, and this is where Tony Collette realises that her mum is a cultist. And, um, you know... As, as, as one does. Yeah. And I feel like this is where we get... Obviously, we get the kind of realisation music, like, and the horror of it, and the holy crap but she's essentially reading through books and i've never been more scared in my life of someone just reading through books because you get these really screaming distorted um woodwind instruments like we just got then but then you get these changing notes which he only gives us so often but really kind of give almost give them a context in a little way and try and and it almost gives us this tragic feeling that it's like this descending note and it's kind of like finality and like, oh God, like what have you gotten us into? Like, mum, like what are you doing? Mm. Um, and I think in a way it, it is starting to allude to King Payment's theme a little bit more as well in, in bass form anyway. Yeah. Um, so let's have a listen to that.
so we al- we almost get a little bit of tonality there, which is strange, but it's completely undercut by the fact that the notes on top are just doing whatever. <laughs> yeah, the notes on top are just literally having a feel. That you get that bass kind of like, oh, there's some concrete progression. Yeah. But again, it's all buried underneath all this kind of like atonal stuff. Yeah, and we get that chord right at the end as well, which is that chord from the beginning that kind of comes mm. back and and I think represents that finality and that that almost fatism. Nothing, nothing can be changed. It's uh, determinism. It's going to happen. Yeah, and we get a mix up, so we get like um, almost brassy stabs, but they're all very inconsistent. There's <laughs> yes, that's true. Yeah, yeah, that, it's that. So I feel like those are kind of the brass stabs or stuff that, you know, John Williams or something does more or less. It's always seen in a more traditional orchestral layout and score. So to have it here in just a weird kind of like finality kind of like, but also it's distorted, it's warped, it's twisted. So I'm just kind of like, okay, so he's trying to use traditional uh, tools that usually mean one thing, but twisting them to kind of symbolize and create more atonality within the piece which i thought was like oh this guy's on it yeah and you can hear voices and stuff in there as well um yes you can yeah just 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 doing some ooze maybe but modulated slightly filling out some of those and he says in an interview mostly when people think they're hearing strings they're hearing his voice so he's using his voice in a really smooth way to kind of create a pad um of stuff and, and then and then adjusting his voice slightly to make it creepy. <laughs> um, Hot damn! But yeah, it's interesting to think like there was no scoring session for this. Like most, you know, major films, they will have a scoring session with orchestra that they go along and they score it over a couple of days. There's nothing. This is just him in his studio by himself, just doing all of it. Well, credit where credit's due, he's probably kept the whole process pretty cheap in terms of you don't hire musicians (laughs) and orchestras it's all him well i mean he probably just got to keep more of the money (laughs) that's true yeah Yeah. (laughs) um so let me take you to probably what i'm calling one of the more sentimental pieces to its own characters so like to king payman king payman gets his major kind of royal theme you'd you'd probably call it or something like that but steve i think almost gets out of all the characters in the family, it's almost like the the score saying, oh, him being here and him having to be destroyed is almost incidental. And, and it's almost a little sad that this bystander kind of got caught up in it because... Yeah, because he's been the most level-headed, calm, and, well, yeah, he's also been a bit dismissive at times, but, no, nothing bad has happened to him until this moment. Yeah, exactly. And... And, I mean, even from a story perspective, because I often wondered, like, oh, well, why wouldn't they go for Steve then? Because Steve is a healthy male body. But it's because it has to be hereditary. It has to be in the grandmother's bloodline because she's the one that that said that she'd get a body for him. Mine has been blown. I know. That's the title of the movie. I know. That's pretty much why it has to be Peter. Um, and so Ugh. I think the score almost reflects that. Like, oh, well, 
you know, this guy has to die, but it's a bit of a waste almost. Yeah. Well, um, we're, not, I mean, we're not happy about this and we're, you know, we're, we're a cult about hell God and the hell king, but we're not happy about this guy dying. Yeah. Um, so this is before he dies. This is in the lead up when she's kind of um, professing her love for him yeah. and, and saying, you are the love of my life. And, and you just know something tragic is going to happen, but it's not exactly what you expect it is. Yeah. I just heard at the end there that almost the light noise because Tony Collette's been taken yeah. over now. That's right, yeah. Because and that in that um, scene, she's like horrified, and then literally within a second later, she goes back to a deadpan face, in, insinuating and not insinuating, but more or less telling us that she's been taken. Yeah, and I mean. You can't get much emo- more emotional than that French horn. No, that was um, yeah. That that French horn. Whenever a French horn plays, I'm kind of like, ah, this is like when you think horns, you think trumpet, you think something noble. Mm. And but there was a real sentimentality over here. It definitely seemed more acutely aware that okay, this part is going to try and be as proper film score as we can be. You know. Yeah, and then um, into cut with. I'm almost starting to discover it might be like Tony Collette's sort of. You, motif that mm-hmm. that like just like the the tones yeah. clashing because you'll get like a line of French horn and then and excuse my very good um, it might even be his voice that he's doing that with because it Could wouldn't it well wouldn't be, be surprise me but um, yeah you get that interaction where like you know she's kind of chaotic and he's standing there just like almost sad that this has happened to his wife um yeah 
And so, yeah, it's really Wait, sentimental, cute, which cute. is so odd for this film to have. It is. But I think it's also uh, a, a good thing about a good film score is even when it takes a left turn in its music, if it can still work and can still retain its kind of internal logic and consistency within the rest of the, the world or the diegesis, and, but then the film's having said that, of course, the film music is non-diegetic, um, then it's fine, and I think it works great here. So here, even though we get what is, I guess, probably the most traditional film score part, it works to great effect, because we don't, we haven't heard anything like that, and then to have here something like this after a period of time of not hearing anything like it, you kind of get, oh, okay, so this is this is something that's different, and you get that, before it then reverts to a horrified kind of cavalcade of sounds when he comes onto fire you know yeah kind of like just putting everything into the pot and stirring it more or less and then and then it goes into the two french horns in unison and we get that classic two notes pulling apart effect i was talking about earlier again mm, yep, but this yep. time with french horns and then they start like spitting out different rhythms and stuff and you're just like oh no <laughs> what's gonna happen um and i also think the fact is, it is kind of the only sentimental part. It, it, it makes it really memorable, and um, also, you know, maybe even influences. You, you think maybe, oh, is this going to end up more of a normal film than I thought it was going to be? Like, maybe, maybe he's right. Maybe this is just her mental illness. Maybe this is just yeah. the mental illness coming through, and this is a tragedy about her and her mental illness. And then from there, it goes. Nope, it's not. <laughs> I yeah, I was intrigued by the duality of it because the film kind of never really takes a firm stance until very much later in the end, right? Because while Tony Collette is learning stuff, there's a thing in the back of my mind where it's kind of like maybe she's not doing great up yeah, here, yeah. you know? Well, she's not, but yeah. but she's also right, which is yeah, it, yeah. It's even more scary. Um, Very scary. So let us move to pretty much the last kind of two cues of the film, and it's and it's where we get the hot damn the uh, reborn cue, which is King Payman's theme, and it's where kind of everything's been leading. and And the way he describes it is is you've finally been let in on this thing. You know, you've had all these disjointed. Um, pieces of music up until this point and now you finally know where all the pieces fit and this is how it's come together um and it's overwhelmingly kind of almost positive and it makes you feel so weird after witnessing all of this stuff (laughs) um you know payman's got a body and and he's happy about it so the music kind of reflects that yeah and seeing as it's from the perspective of the cult mission accomplished so it should be a triumphant regal version which I think is what the cue accomplishes. Exactly. And we're, and we're going to try and listen to as much of this as we can. But um, ultimately, the, the I think the creepiest part about this cue, because it, and, and it still has an element of creepiness in it, is, and I can't tell what instrument it is. It might be alto or soprano sax. But the lead melody line in this is severely distorted. And mm. um, although I think musically fits like note wise it is tonal the way it slides makes it just feel so off um so listen to that and then and then the last cue is um uh hail payment which is where the low chanty voices come in 
More of those John Williams stabs at the end. Yeah. Uh, Hot damn. It's powerful. But, I mean, well, outside of that one melody towards the end of that um, excerpt we just played, the beginning's almost nice. (laughs) Like, listening to it without the film, it's like, oh, this is like a nice piece of music. It's like a very classical kind of like a a classical woodwind line. Like, I don't even remember um, how it goes. But it, it does feel like something that's out of a... The classical or even the romantic era era of um, music, you know, with uh, almost like the beginnings are a prelude to a full orchestral part, but the orchestra is not your typical orchestra. Instead, it's all these distorted atonal stuff, which I thought was an an interesting way to do it, to keep it within the sonic family of what has been created, but now instead give it a full proper kind of body and context. Yeah, for sure. And... Yeah, the juxtaposition juxtaposition to what's on screen, I think, is is really what sells this. Um, because, it, I mean, in a sense, it is really to just put the audience off kilter a little bit. But I think it serves a better story purpose than just, uh, let's make the audience feel weird. I think it does make sense. And really, what else are you going to put that like that's the best thing about this score to me yeah is what else are you gonna put there are you gonna put like a creepy sounding like it that wouldn't work no anything else would have sounded really out of place and just would have literally d- detracted and distracted from the what's happening on the screen which is unless that's the intention it's not what film music should do yeah exactly opinion, at least and 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 it's meant to be jarring because what we're experiencing is jarring. I mean, the story is jarring. We're finally let in, and we're like, "Oh, the cultists were right, and Joni was right, and Hitler was right." Holy crap! And so the music's like, "Yep, that's it." And then full display, one hundred and twenty percent. We're not holding anything back now. All the cards are on the table. Yeah. Yep. Um, it's kind of like, ah, oh, wow. Can't believe it's ending like this, but all it, right. It's such a victory dance, isn't it? It's such a, like, whoa, here we go. And, you know, Ari Aster likes doing this as well because, obviously, Ari Aster went on to do uh, Midsummer, And I don't know if you've seen which Midsummer. Cult, which is, um, I've seen the trailer and I know it's a cult-based film. So I'm kind of like, well, he's got a thing for cults. It, 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 it is, but it's less so about the supernatural. Like, it's not about supernatural yeah. stuff at all. It's more about trippy drugs, um, but well, I I heard for that one the basis was he had a, gone through a really bad breakup, so this was his take on the breakup movie. Yeah, it's, it, I mean, it is. Take. It's an interesting breakup movie. Let me tell you that. But it does finish on a similar note of you know, although we've seen some horrific shit, we've been through a lot. The characters that are in there at that moment are experiencing a good moment and so the score reflects that and it's and it's this celebration moment and so he likes doing it and i think it's effective i think if he does it in his next film i'll be like okay that's maybe you maybe used that trick a little bit too much yeah but let's let, let's pump the brakes here let's try something new you know because you know who went this route it was Shyamalan. Mm. six Sense was great tony collette was in that one too mm. um uh, he, then he did it again with Unbreakable, which I still maintain is a fantastic movie, but trying to do a twist again gave diminishing returns. And then with Signs, even more diminishing returns. And then it just kept on 
going right and then the the biggest twist of all he's a shit filmmaker with the last airbender um <laughs> but you know but yeah but i guess what i'm talking about is not so much because midsummer doesn't really i uh, i guess it does have a twist towards the end but not as much as this it's not like okay now there's demons involved and the kings of hell and this is all real and you know everyone was right this is more like you know, holy like what I'm talking about is more that musical twist, if you will. Like, yeah, the yeah. he's telling the composers like this is a celebration. We really want to celebrate not, this not, moment, not, even not horrifying. though the yeah, even though the audience isn't yeah. going to be ready for that. This is what we're doing, and that's what I mean. Like, he likes kind of ending on that positive note, even though the audience is not there <laughs> at all <laughs> and not with them. It's inherently um, not a positive situation, but in his mind, he's like, "No, nah, no, nah, this is great." We're having a great time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so let's yeah. finish up on this last cue. It's called Hail Payment, and it's very short, but it's just uh, when they're yelling, Hail Payment, <laughs> and we get that screechy sax again, uh, followed by the choral. Almost just because he doesn't want to leave you resolved, he adds that little bit of a slide into chromaticism just to make you go, yeah. "Oh yeah, it's still a horror movie." <laughs> <laughs> that that high part almost reminds me a little bit of Blade Runner at times, like those almost Vangelis-like yeah. kind of synths, um, but they are almost overshadowed by this oppressive choral kind of. I guess maybe it's his take on the boom, but more like a. You know, which again, I still yeah. think that he they did that in the Conjuring too, like at the like the title sound, kind of like ah, maybe it is my conspiracy. Some one of us <laughs> at least has to have a conspiracy on this for yeah. continuity sake. Yeah, exactly. And I I love this film too much to have a conspiracy corner about it, but you well, can certainly you have that. There you go. Yeah, um, this will be Zim's inaugural and possibly final conspiracy corner. <laughs> <laughs> um. Fitting, because it is a film that has conspiracies in it as well, generally. I know the cult's not going to get me now. Ah. (laughs) Um, But, yeah, and and it's interesting. He does make that sound like synth as well, but it's crazy to me that that's a real instrument. Like, that's probably a a soprano saxophone he's just screaming into and then adding a bunch of distortion and reverb onto as well. Like, he's abusing his instruments, but, like, in the best way possible. <laughs> I mean, I don't advocate abusing instruments, just saying, because they're, like, really expensive. But if you have to, make sure it's for a great cause. Well, yeah, and I, I, I'm i not even saying... I'm sure he's treating the instrument physically okay. I just mean he's abusing the sound a lot. Um, yeah, yeah. And really pushing it to the limit. And you can hear it. You can hear the strain in that sound. Like, it's it's, it's screeching. It's, it's desperately trying to be like, ah, oh, please, I can't hold on any longer. Ugh. Yeah, exactly. And he's, he's pushing it to the limit. But there we are. We've, we've come to the end of this score. Um, obviously, as I've five. said before, please... 
And episode five, yeah. But please go and go and watch the film if you. I don't know why you're still listening if you haven't watched the film, but please go and listen to the score. It's amazing. I mean, I worked out to it this morning in preparation. Uh, I wouldn't recommend Hot that. Damn. Um, it was. Oh, really? I, I feel like it, it, <laughs> it was very quite, creepy. You've just been like, yeah, get the heart rate up. Gets you even working out even more, <laughs> burns the calories more. I don't know. Yeah, I burn, feel like yeah, burn more calories. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But uh, it's uh, interesting if you're in a home alone listening to this, like um, <laughs> to the score, or like late at night. I don't know. It just gets under your skin, and I don't know whether it's me imagining the film, but this this the music itself is is just very uh, skin getting undery. <laughs> If I, that's not brilliant, a term. brilliant articulation there <laughs> thank you yeah um no it's, it's been I, a long episode to anyone to it has been a long one um but i suspect that we would we would cover quite a, a lot of stuff seeing as it's your like your favorite mm. scores of all time you know we have to devote the right mm. appropriate amount of time um i really like this film um i was almost going to love territory because of the many levels and stuff in it but it's also great entertainment if you like to scare yourself shitless um, and I mm. think it's a uh, really one of the best horror films we've got in the past decade. So that's definitely one that you should check out. And you know, the last decade or so has more or less been a horror renaissance of sorts. Um, and this is kind of like the gem of it, really. So I definitely recommend. Yeah, exactly. We, we've had a, quite a few great horror f- films in the last couple of years, and this is definitely up there. I think. Um, and, I mean, if you want to check out more of Colin Stetson's work, he's obviously got an extensive solo um, catalogue. But you probably, if you play games and stuff, you probably heard him in uh, Red Dead Redemption 2. Although that was had a specific composer, he did a couple of tracks in there. Right. Um, okay, cool. Yeah, and, and surprisingly, you take that in, in isolation and you can hear the hereditary in it. <laughs> but <laughs> in in, fa- in fairness to him... I'm guessing it was, and this is an interesting thing that we've left too late in this discussion to start, but I bet you this film was temped with his own music. So temp, you know, temp scores, temporary scores that we've talked about in the past that, you know, sometimes they use previous music from other composers. composers. Imagine being temped your own music and then you're like, (laughs) okay, I've got to try and be as good as myself <laughs> from here on in. I suppose yeah. I would be like, oh, thank God they use my music. I know what I need to do and not like follow someone else, I guess. Follow and, like, yeah. and probably pass him will be like, well, this is future Zim's problems now. You know? um, yeah, but. exactly. I think for someone like Colin Stetson as, as well, though, like he seems like someone that always wants to be evolving. He never wants to do the same thing twice. So I imagine that was a challenge mm. for him. Capturing the same spirit while trying different things. Yeah, that's always something weird. Um, I don't know whether I would probably do that. It really depends because I definitely come from stuff from a lot more of a pragmatic approach, given my science background. So I'm just so Mm -hmm. I sometimes go fall into the all right. If I've done this this one way and it works, do I really need to do it another way? But again, of course, there's merit. There's definitely merit to having trying different creative ways to solve a problem. Or to get the same mm. solution, so I, I suspect it's something I need to learn in the future. Um, but we'll just have to wait and see. Yeah, no. It, but uh, 
experimentation is good, but it can also, I mean, I like experimentation, but it just opens so many cans of worms for me and um, gives me too many options sometimes. But yeah, no, Colin Stetson's great. He's gone on to do uh, a fair few different films now. I think the most recent one that I've heard of was Color Out of Space. The, uh, was it a Stephen King novel? No, No, it's it's not a Stephen King novel. Yeah, it's a HP. It's a HP Lovecraft, Lovecraft that's um, it. Yes, yeah. story. Yeah, yeah, with Nicolas Cage, and he did the score for that. I haven't seen it, but I, I really want to, <laughs> if only for the score. But I mean, let's be honest. We'd also want to see it for Nicolas Cage because that yeah. man, that man is an enigma. And we yeah, have you seen find Mandy? Out what's happening with him? I haven't. I heard it's pretty. It's all right. It's not too bad. I, I I, it's it, pretty good. I, I, I really like yeah. it. And and Nicolas Cage is actually like. I mean, I think he's leaning into who he is, which is a good thing. <laughs> he's he's accepted who he is. I and I feel like this is a pretty bad comparison. But when I was watching a trailer for Midsummer, and I was watching Hereditary, when it came to all the cult discussions and cult lighting, I'm, I'm I was getting a bit of Wicker Man kind of vibes at times. And of mm. course, the Wicker Man is uh, an old is an old Nick Cage movie, which has become notorious for its memes. It's the not the bees. <laughs> one so uh, <laughs> uh, uh that's yeah, more or less I, I yeah you should check out midsummer it's not scored by colin stetson but it is scored by an <sighs> icelandic composer um or a swedish composer um it, not to say it, that it's not hilder is it no no, no. no it's not um okay. but it's it's very good it, it is similar style score it's all very atmospheric and uh, um oh yeah slow burning score but um it's different but it's it's just as good i think well maybe not just as good but it's good um so yeah that that's well, that's been sound of scoring episode five we hope you've enjoyed it um yes well enjoy um, as much as you can being creeped the fuck out <laughs> yeah i i understand you know some people will probably post posit the question why watch a horror movie why do you want to scare yourself and i say to that because it's fun yeah. It's fun sometimes, you know. Um, please let us know what next Hans Zimmer film from the 2000s you want us to do. Otherwise, we will pick a random one from the 2000s. Or if you we just want to suggest any kind of film at all. Like, whatever whatever you want to do. Just suggest something th- if you want. That too. Yeah. Otherwise, I don't know. We'll randomly go with Madagascar. Just cause. Does Madagascar have a good score? It has a memorable theme. <laughs> I remember the theme. He, yeah, I only he, know he I like to the... move it. Move. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. See, that's how far we're willing we're we're willing to go unless we get some feedback. Mm. Nah, I'm kidding. Um, you, and you. I also wanted to. I think I'm not sure if I did it in the first episode or not, but I also really wanted to shout out um, for the first time, or maybe the second time, uh, the art of the score, um, a podcast yes, yeah. that. Largely, insp- largely inspired me to start this one. Um, go and check that out. If they, they are experts in their field, that I mean, way more experts than we are, um, yeah. and they can give you detail. Um, if you are interested in the actual music, like they can give you detailed analysis. I think the last one they yeah. did was uh, how how to train your dragon, and I think they did, the last Ooh. one they did was the Mummy, which I think is a Jerry Goldsmith score. Oh, okay, wait, the like the OG Mummy. The Mummy in the 90s with Brandon Fraser. Was that Jerry Goldsmith or Alan Silvestri? I feel like it would be a Silvestri. 
I think it's Jerry Goldsmith. I'm not sure. Hang on. Let me, really? Let me let me look this up. Uh, the mum. Because I know Stephen Summers, the director, works with Sylvester for a lot of stuff. It's Jerry Goldsmith. Oh shit! Yeah. Ah. Neat, um, because All they're right. talking about they they really want to do um, Planet of the Apes, which is another Goldsmith film. But that is Ooh. really tough to talk about because there's so many like different yeah things that go on is. with that. But yeah, go check them out. They they're they're really great um, and yeah. they've inspired we, me a lot. So yeah, we we are literally in their shadow. Yeah, every exactly. time we do this. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, they don't need us shouting them out, by the way. They're like the third biggest movie no. podcast in Australia or something. But <laughs> yeah. Well, there you go. Anyway, thank you for listening to us uh, ramble on yes. about our favorite films. Thank you so much. This has been the episode on Hereditary, directed by Ari Aster. I've been Invader Zim. Uh, and I have been Mikey G. Mikey G. What am I doing? <laughs> you, you, you started strong, but you <laughs> ended on a banner. Um, besides the point, thank you for listening. Check, um, stay tuned for our next episode. Um, love to hear from you, and uh, we'll see you soon. Bye. Bye.